0: I'd like to share with you from the uh, book of Ezekiel and uh, before we get to the the book of Ezekiel we're going to be reading today I'd like to share some some context. Um, when you think about the prophet Ezekiel uh, he lives during a time that uh, really has a lot of ups and downs uh, spiritually in Israel. He witnesses in his youth he wit- he witnesses the, the, the moral and spiritual uh, revival that takes place under King Josiah Then, of course, after Josiah's death, Israel is at this high spiritually, and they plunge to the bottom. So he sees the nation go from highs to lows. And he sees his nation on fire for God, and he sees them turn to idolatry. And as a result of Judah's disobedience, God gives that nation over to the penalty of their sins, and they allow Judah to come under attack from foreign kingdoms, and they lose their sovereignty. Uh, The nations who invaded Judah become... uh, Take the, the king out, remove the king, put their own king in, and they're able to rule that, that land through a submissive ruler. Uh, Judah's forced to pay tribute to these kingdoms, which uh, obviously added some economic hardship. And if, it, if Judah failed to pay tribute, the opposing kingdom would just simply march right into their territory, take what they wanted. So during this time of hardship, God sends prophets to Judah calling the nation to repentance. And then the people of Judah obviously do not respond with repentance. Uh, instead, they respond to, to the message with nationalism. They, they become very nationalistic. And they try to rebel against the kings or against uh, Babylon who had sovereignty over them, but it fails. Uh, this results in their destruction, the destruction of Jerusalem. It's completely obliterated. And thousands were exiled and thousands more were taken captive to Babylon. Babylon. In a number of ways, our nation parallels the nation of Judah spiritually and morally. Uh, Long before Judah became subject to Babylon, there were warning signs. I mean, just to the north of them, they saw what happened to their Jewish brothers in the north. Israel, same thing happened to them. God sending prophet after prophet. They continued to turn away from God, turn towards idolatry, and they witnessed the entire nation, or the good majority of it, taken as captive, taken away, dispersed, and other people brought into the land. So they see these warning signs. They know what's taking place, but they don't turn from their sin. And I believe our nation is much the same. We see the signs taking place. They are warning us, but we're not making a turn. And God's called messengers to fill the pulpits of our nations. I believe that with all my heart that we don't just come up here and share a small sermon, some good ideas, and that's the way it should be. There should be a, a, a prophetic nature to what's being preached and also there be there should be some part of our messaging that addresses the sinful condition of our world. So they're sent, we're called to be messengers. We're called to fill these pulpits and give a message from God. And and our, I feel that our our world is just not, even maybe the church itself, is not concerned with the spiritual and moral condition of our nation. And I'm worried the church isn't taking the signs seriously. Uh, We're failing to understand there's an urgency that's being communicated through the signs that we're seeing. And arguably, I would say this, that that the United States is probably the greatest nation that has ever existed. And so we have a, a A strong patriotic uh, feeling we have a a very nationalistic feeling to to us Um, we're proud of the fact that uh, God has blessed our nation and truly that's where our favor comes from it's from the Lord Uh, America is great because we have made Christ Lord but if our if our nation ceases to trust the Lord our our nation will cease to be great the numbers don't lie church our nation is becoming more of a secular nation. Over the last 50 years, a 35% decrease in those who identify as Christian. 35% over one third. Our culture doesn't live. We no longer value the righteousness of God. Instead, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Uh, the men and women who fill the pulpits in our churches need to step back into the role of of Ezekiel and what God called him to be. And this is where I wanna share with you from Ezekiel chapter 33, verse one. It says, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, when I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman. When he sees the sword coming upon the land, If he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take the warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take the warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes the warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them. He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. We're living in the last days, and I truly believe the last part of the last days. And there are signs taking place all around us, reminding us where we are in regards to the return of Christ. In Matthew chapter 24, we've been studying this, looking at this, and Jesus shares a number of signs with his disciples. And signs to help them understand the nearness of his return. Jesus said there would be a time of deception. Here's a buzzword, misinformation. It's just deception. That's exactly what it is. There would be wars and rumors of wars. There would be civic civic disorder, uh, ethnic conflict. There would be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. Now, in regards to those signs, Jesus makes this statement In verse 8, all these are the beginning of birth pains. All of the signs that he mentions previous are simply the beginning of birth pains. For any woman who's given birth, you understand birth pains. I remember going to the doctor with Jenny uh, when she was pregnant with Peyton, and the doctor mentioned the term Braxton Hicks. And uh, for those of you who have no clue what that is, they're the pre-labor contractions. They're, they're basically practice contractions. They're getting that mother, her body prepared for labor. They're, they're practice contractions. They're not as painful, obviously, as labor pains. And when Jesus shared the signs with his disciples concerning the last days, he was very specific. He called them birth pains. And we're beyond the point of pre-labor contractions, church. What we're experiencing in our world are labor pains. The signs we see are, are in experiencing, they're telling us, they're, they're revealing to us the return of Christ for his church is very near and we ought to be prepared. Now maybe you're sitting here and you don't believe that there's going to be a rapture of the church. That's your prerogative. Um, let's say that uh, you don't believe that the rapture is imminent. You have plenty of time, that's your prerogative. Um, and I will say this, Whether you, you, I totally believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. However, but let's say this for any naysayers, or you may be correct about this, okay? But let's say there won't be a rapture. Even at that case, what we see taking place is pointing us to something. Do we really believe our nation can continue down the path that we're traveling, morally and spiritually, without divine repercussions? I don't think so. What if the signs we're seeing are pointing to the rapture of the church? Or what if they are pointing to this? What if the signs we're seeing in our nation are simply pointing to the collapse of our nation? Signs are taking place. They are alerting us to something and we, as the body of Christ, must be ready. Jesus said this in verse six of Matthew chapter 24, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. I've mentioned this throughout the series. 32 armed conflicts currently around the world. 32. We are seeing wars and rumors of wars before our very eyes. Now, when we look at the the war that's taking place in Israel, or in Gaza specifically, is that conflict, is that war any different from all the other conflicts that are taking place? And in regards to wars and rumors of wars, Jesus said this, we ought not to be troubled. Now that doesn't mean we look at the war in Gaza, we shouldn't view it as any other conflict because it's not just any other conflict. It is a conflict, but it's not any other conflict. I don't believe we ought to be of this perspective that we just blow it off like nothing's taking place. Any war in Israel, any conflict in Israel should get our attention as Christians. You know, this past week, Russia formally supported Hamas. That should wake you up right there. Russia has met with Iran, said they would support Iran to obtain its effort to create a ballistic missile. Both Israel and Russia, I don't know if you know this, Russia, it's really interesting. Uh, Russia has been fighting some of these same people in Syria. But isn't it ironic that now Russia is going to help back Hamas, or at least support them politically? Um, both Israel and Russia have conducted air raids inside Syria. That's been going on for years now, five or six years. And in the past, both sides decided to do this because sometimes they bomb the same areas. So they don't want their jet fighters crossing with each other and coming in contact with each other. They don't want any accidents. So they've been communicating, hey, we're about ready to bomb this area. We're going to bomb this area. We don't have any crossover. With this rising tension over Gaza, both... Russia and Israel have ceased communicating with each other. Now they're both gonna bomb the same areas with their jets. That is a catastrophe waiting to happen. And for years I've heard Bible prophecy experts warn about this Russian-Persian alliance and they believe it's fulfilling the prophecy of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapter 38. And in the past, I I thought it was interesting, I didn't think, think about it being a possibility until this conflict began and it's amazing how fast things can change and how fast the world can can come into alignment with scripture one of the reasons why jesus said we ought not to be troubled by wars and rumors of wars have nothing to do with those events here's what i mean by that instead jesus doesn't warn us about wars and rumors of wars to trouble us he that's not our focus that's why he says you shouldn't be troubled by them they are going to come to pass so when we see wars and rumors of wars, we shouldn't be all worried and frazzled by them. We should draw closer to Jesus. That's the object. That's why signs take place. Not to cause us worry and trouble and throw us into some sort of anxiety. No, it's to draw us closer to Jesus. Paul writes these words uh, to believers as a reminder. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you and I, You have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, you and I, are not in darkness, so this day should not overtake you as a thief. Paul said that we ought not to be concerned with the specific time of Christ's return. And here's why. Because we don't know, we can't know, only God knows. Why worry yourself about that? Paul also stated to the church that you ought not be surprised when it takes place. That it will come as a thief in the night upon those who are crying out peace and safety. But to you, brethren, this should not be of any surprise to us. We may not know the hour, the, the specific time of the arrival of Christ for his church, but we should know the season. And the season is right. As a pastor, I believe it's one of my responsibilities as any pastor is to be a watchman, to recognize signs, to communicate the, the imminency that's taking place through those signs. Now, I'm not called to stir up fear, cause anxiety, but I am called to encourage you to draw closer to Christ. And this calling is difficult because I don't think the church is sensing the eminency communicated through the signs. You know, if we believe these signs are true and Christ is near, I believe we would see more people in church, more consistent in church. I know church is not the only uh, uh, way to measure a person's spirituality, but it is part of it. And I believe that we would see more consistency in church, at least in that area. I believe we'd see more consistency in our Christian living. Fear, the reason why people, we, don't, we shouldn't cause fear, because fear, if, it's not, if, it, if it doesn't happen, like Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And when you start naming dates, you're in trouble, right? But you, you impress, you preach it constantly. Jesus is coming, and there is a fear that he's not coming. And, and you, you lose that, that imminency. And so what happens is people have this fear for a while, and they let their guard down, and they actually do the reverse. They become very complacent, that takes place often. So some pastors worry about beating the drum too often concerning the imminent return of Christ for his church. They worry about preaching this too often, especially if Jesus tarries. This, This could cause complacency. So some preachers fear people will begin to doubt the return of Christ. But I disagree, and I disagree because of what Scripture says. And 2 Peter verse 3 says this, and this is stated in a very prophetic manner. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. There's, so there's no question there, Peter saying, scoffers will come in the last days. Walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, my mom, my grandma, my great-grandma, whoever, they constantly said, Jesus was coming back, Jesus was coming back, and he never came back in their lifetime, so maybe he just isn't coming back. Why all the hoopla? Why all the talk? Why all the concern? Scoffers will come in the last days. We're warned in Scripture that a day will come when people will not heed the warnings concerning the return of Christ. It doesn't matter if the church over-communicates the imminent return of Christ or if we undercommunicate it because people are going to harden their hearts in the last day and will begin to scoff at the idea that Jesus is returning. Church, we have a choice to make in regards to the signs we're seeing. We could choose to respond to them with greater commitment to Christ, which if you, if you today are hearing the word, you feel convicted or feel moved or challenged to draw closer to Jesus, you can't go wrong with that. If Jesus delays his coming, that's why you're close to him. Why would you even care? If he does return and you're close to him, double bonus. There's no harm in separating yourself from this world and drawing closer to Jesus. So we can respond with greater commitment or we can simply ignore the signs. Some of you may be watching the news that's taking place in Israel and think, this, what does this current conflict Amount to anyways. What does, it have, what does it have to do with me? And I would suggest that you don't turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to this conflict. And I'm not saying you should sit in front of Fox News all day long and just hang on every word. But if you don't feel some concern or some pulling towards this conflict, mostly likely it's a mute point to you and you're not even seeing the own dangers that are in your own world, your own nation, even in your own community. Our nation has become lawless, it's become secular, it's self-centered, and it's very distant from Christ. And I'm trying to be a watchman God's called me to, but it's difficult. It's difficult if, you're, if no one's listening. And I, I pray that just get your heads out of the sand just for a little bit. Because putting your head in the sand, pretending like the world is going to hell, it's not happening, will not work. When you finally come up for air, you're going to find out it's the same thing. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come. Again, another, what we could say, prophetic statement. There is no gray area here, right? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now, are we talking about the world or the church? We're obviously talking about the church because the world doesn't care about sound doctrine. Either way, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Paul gives us another sign of the end times. People will go to church, claim to be Christian, but they don't want to hear the truth. Many don't want to be challenged or have their toes stepped on. Instead, want to have our ears scratched. We got a scratch. We we got an itch. We want to scratch. People want to have to be able to do this. I I want to perform my religious duty. I want to go to church, and then I want to go about my business unencumbered. And if the preacher starts preaching on sin, that's fine. Just not my sin. We want to hear about grace. We want to hear about mercy. We want to hear about forgiveness of sin, but we don't want to hear about judgment. We don't want to hear about repentance. We don't want to hear about holiness. All those, you can't separate those things. They all go together. Church, all of us ought to be uncomfortable sitting in church when the preaching of God's word, whoever's preaching... If we're dealing with sin, we should be uncomfortable. You know, I don't want to go to a church where the scriptures are weaponized and I feel like I'm victimized. Nobody wants that. But I don't want to be in a church, I, I don't want to be a part of a church that's going to shy away from sharing the truth, even when the truth hurts. Let's be honest. Most Americans think of our nation as invincible. Many of you probably even say, I can't imagine this world without the United States of America. Yet... We've only been in existence for a couple hundred years, and the world got along just fine without us. But we can't imagine. I'm sure the Roman Empire, which was much larger, had, had a little bit more, you know, whatever, maybe in its time. You know, it's kind of like this. Do the NBA players of the 80s, could they play in the NBA today? Could the football players of the 80s play? To, you know, it's kind of like that whole thing. You know, are we truly the greatest empire it's ever? I don't know. You know, apples to apples, oranges to oranges. But most of us feel like we're the greatest nation that's ever been on this planet, and we think we're so powerful that we can never fall. You know, if you pay attention to world history, you understand this, empires rise, empires fall. And usually, the more powerful the empire, they don't fall because of an invasion, they fall apart, and then they're invaded. Church, we've heard the the saying before, history, Repeats itself. Mankind is fallen and repeats its behaviors. The war in Israel should be getting our attention. It should cause us to pause and really to examine ourselves. You know we're watching our nation implode morally and spiritually. You know what's taking place in Israel is showing something ugly about our nation that's obviously been unco- that's been covered for a while. And then when politics begin to replace the preaching of the gospel in pulpits, there's a problem. And then you add upon this, when the social gospel's being preached, but the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't being preached, you got problems. You know, as a pastor, I'm more concerned, honestly, I'm concerned about Israel, but I'm more concerned about America. I'm more concerned about what's taking place in our own world. I'm more concerned about a lifeless expression of Christianity People just going through the motions, doing church, whatever, but having no real solid relationship with Christ. A daily walk with him, an intimate walk with him. That's more concerning than anything else in this world. Well, I'm concerned about Israel. I know this. God will take care of Israel. Israel does not need the United States of America. If that's the case, they are relying upon man, not God. Just watch history. God has taken care of Israel. Israel. You know, are we in the place of God? Does God? Does the Israel really need us more than they need God? How arrogant of us to even think that? Yet it's part of our thinking. Poor little Israel—they're just never going to make it without us. They're going to wipe people off the map—is what they're going to do. They got nowhere else to go. Let's be honest—if we faced that same threat, I don't know that we would be so brave. I think we might just implode. As Christians, we ought to support Israel. We should stand against anti-Semitism. But Israel's help doesn't come from America. It comes from the Lord. And when the tribulation happens, there is going to be a, a dramatic shift from the times of the Gentiles to the Jewish people. Paul prophesies about a day when the culture of mankind will look and function like this. Pay attention to these words. Again, a prophetic glimpse into the future from a first century perspective. Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but deny its power and from such people turn away. I don't know if this describes the rest of the world, but I think it's a pretty accurate description of our world. And when a nation looks like this and functions like this, that nation will experience perilous times. The signs are occurring all around us. They're warning us, but the church has become secular. It's, we've become, we're more concerned about getting our scratch itched the culture has increasingly, increasingly become more self-centered. We have a form of godliness, but that godliness has no power to deliver us or transform our lives. We talk about Jesus, but we aren't experiencing Jesus. Church, our, our nation needs to repent, which is at the heart of true revival, and experience revival. If Jesus is distant in our lives, there's a reason. And the reason is not because of the church, the pastor, the music, the programs— The reason why we aren't close to Jesus is because we've not drawn near to him. We've drawn near to other things. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus shared a number of signs that would help his followers to understand that nearness. And we went through this throughout the series. But if you look at, it's called the Olivet Discourse, if you want a theological term for it. And it's the the signs and it's all the parables that follow. It's called the Olivet Discourse. Eschatological term. It's it's the signs and the parables which reaffirm the sign. So Matthew chapter twenty four and twenty five. One conversation. If you study your Bible, uh, that's the context you want to. If you want to start twenty four and end at twenty five, it's the entire conversation. So everything that is shared within that context is in regards to the end times, and you have to put it all together. Jesus gives signs, gives you a breakdown too of the. What takes place before the rapture, then there's the rapture, what takes place after the rapture in the tribulation, and then what follows that are parable after parable reinforcing what he just spoke. So he ends with the signs and all that with, with this in verse 32. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branches have already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that the end is near. At the door. This parable is, is, is pretty easy to, to understand in regards to the signs. Super easy to understand. When you see these signs occurring, know that the end is near. When you see these signs occurring consistently, know the end is near. If Jesus is coming, we ought in coming soon, we ought to be drawing near to him. Look at this in verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. Jesus shared all these signs, and he gives a parable. Again, a very easy picture to understand. Jesus, if he steps back into this world right now, calls his church home, some of us won't be ready. You know, he's not talking about the world and the church. He's talking about the church. It's not in the context of the world. It's the church. Those who are ready will be those who recognize the signs, have drawn closer to Jesus, further away from this world, and knowing that he can expect at any moment. For those who aren't taken or aren't going with Christ at that time, they didn't prepare themselves. They didn't draw closer to Christ, and they're left behind. What is Jesus trying to communicate? We must be ready, because the Son of Man is returning at a moment we don't expect. Let's go down to verse 45. Who then is, the, is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his house to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him doing so. Assuredly I say to you that he will make him ruler over his, all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying in his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunkards, that master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour that he is not aware of. Clearly, the master in the story is Jesus. Clearly, the servants are the church. He expects when he returns for his servants to be doing what he's called them to do. One servant obeys his master, does what his master instructs. When his master returns, finds him doing so, rewards him. While the other servant realizes this, he said he was coming right back, but he's not coming back. So he views it as an opportunity just to relax. There's plenty of time to do what you need to do and still get right. And he starts down that path and he just does what he wants. But the master obviously returns at a time he doesn't expect and he finds that, faith, that servant unfaithful, not doing what he ought to be doing. Church, I just echo the words of Jesus in verse 6 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. We need to be that servant. Jesus gave his servants a responsibility. We are his servants. When Jesus returns, he expects us to find us committed, carrying out that responsibility. Some of us aren't ready. We're just not ready. We're not where we ought to be. If Jesus would step back into this world where he'd be honest, we'd say, I'm not doing what he's called me to do. I'm not where I ought to be. I wouldn't be found faithful doing what he's assigned me to do. See, this isn't a matter of salvation here in this point. It's just that you're these are two saved servants. One's doing the right thing, one's doing the wrong thing. One is ready, one's not ready. Readiness and preparedness as it relates to Christ isn't determined by your past experience, by your past salvation experience. It's about this when Jesus returns. Every born-again believer ought to be ready, but not every born-again believer will be ready. And some of you just aren't where you ought to be in your relationship with Christ. You aren't prepared. You're not ready for him. If that's the case, you've got time. you got time right now. There's going to be a rapture. I believe that with all my heart. And it could take place at any moment. Some of you aren't where you ought to be with the Lord. Know this. What do you do? What do you do with Matthew chapters 24 and 25? I mean, what, what do you do with it? If you know that you're not living right for God, you're not where you ought to be. You're not as committed to him as you ought to be. You know the end could happen. You know Jesus could return at any moment. What, how, what do you do with those chapters? If you just kind of look, oh, chapter 24, oh, I'm gonna skip over that. It doesn't change the words. It's still there. I mean, you can physically take them out and just rip the pages out. You know, some people, if you tear out certain pages of the Bible, they'd be very offended, livid, Right? But again, I want you to put it in this perspective. God's, God's given you his word. You have it. You know what it says, but you just don't do it. What's more offensive? The church, the sword is coming upon the land. And I'm not trying to, sh- to raise fear, I'm just sounding the alarm. The sword is coming upon the land. Think about this. I, I, I looked at this, and there you can find a number of statistics on this. I actually chose the lower one 50 million babies from 1973 to 2023, aborted, 50 million. Christianity in our nation decreased over 30% over those same 50 years. 24, only 24% of Americans believe the Bible is true. The US is the world's largest producer and consumer, consumer of pornography. I mean, we, we can go on and on and on. We, we understand from the word that God's created us male and female, but that somehow is fluid today. You know, we can't, we can repeat moral and spiritual stat one after another, and you would grow tired because you already know the picture. You see it every day. You already know it exists. How can we stand aside and say that the sword is not coming upon the land? If we, if we pull away from Christ and we have these things that have taken place, The sword will come up. There will be judgment. And the reason you have to come to that conclusion is this. Read your Bible. Isn't this not how God treated Israel? His own people, his special people, the people he loved? Why are we any better? Why are we any different? See, we believe this. And again, we think grace, grace. And yes, we believe in grace. But I want you to go back into the New Testament to the teachings of Jesus when he's on the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins to draw the difference between the law and grace. Grace. And I want you to come read that and find out, is there a higher responsibility under the law or grace? It's wrong for you to commit adultery, right? Under the law. But under grace, it's wrong for you to lustfully lustfully look upon a woman. Which has a greater responsibility? Law or grace? Clearly grace. I mean, he goes after one after the other. It's not like we get grace. Free sin, free sin. How, How can we live in this manner, and not expect the sword. And that's why, church, we need revival. And I don't mean kooky, spooky, fruity, flaky. I mean heartfelt repentance. You know, in, in when Josiah came, became king during the, the early days of Ezekiel's life, Ezekiel wasn't a priest at that time. He wasn't a prophet. He was just a young man living in Jerusalem. He saw his nation at, at the pinnacle. And when Josiah came in, he had inherited the kingdoms of Manasseh and Ammon who did wicked in the eyes of the Lord. one of the, Two of the worst kings Israel ever had led the nation into idolatry. They, they pulled in the gods from the other nations, pulled them into the temple, into the temple courts. You didn't go there just to worship God. You went there to worship every other deity of all the other kingdoms around them. God began to judge. God began to pour out his wrath. Josiah recognizes this. He repents. They say they find the book of the law. It's, it's stashed away in the temple. It's got junk all over it. They had to bring it up dust off the dust, begin to read the law of God, the righteousness of God. And the nation repented. And so he begins to repair the temple. He begins to restore the temple. He clears all the junk out of the temple. He goes throughout Israel, clears out all the high places, all the altars that are set to other gods. That's Revival. That's revival, repentance, a a restoration of God's people unto God. If we don't pay attention to the signs, if we don't repent, and repentance begins with the house of God, if we don't repent, and then we also turn our backs on Israel, the sword will come upon the land.